This week, I will be reading from Leviticus chapter 25, just a few verses there, and then I'm going to flip over to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. And this is our last um, Sunday in our series on God's rest, the seventh day rest, which is, which is about the Sabbath, but it's also about much more than just the Sabbath, as we've seen through the last few months. Uh, and so this morning, I'm reading about the year of Jubilee, which is kind of like the ultimate pinnacle of this whole Sabbath system. Um, And so I'm reading from Leviticus 25, starting in verse 8. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. And you could read on the rest of chapter 5 that explains in even more detail about the year of jubilee. But I'm going to flip over now to the gospel of Luke chapter 4. Starting in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. But the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what you've, we heard you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. 
Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In her book entitled Home by Another Way, Barbara Brown Taylor tells about a time when she attended a weekend retreat with about 70 other people. In the opening session of the retreat, everyone was asked to tell a story about a person who, in their life who had acted as Christ to them. She writes, after we'd all thought about it a little while, some people got up and told their stories to the group. There was one about a friend who stayed put during an illness when everyone else deserted. Another about a neighbor who took the place of a father who self-destructed. One after the other, there were stories of comfort, compassion, and rescue. The conference room, Taylor writes, turned into a church where we settled into the warmth of each other's company. Jesus, our friend, was right there with us, and all was right in the world, until one woman stood up, and she said, Well, the first thing I thought about when I tried to think of who had been Christ to me was who in my life has told me the truth so clearly that I wanted to kill them for it. Jesus is our friend, our comforter, our savior. But Jesus' message cannot be reduced to a warm hug and a pat on the back. The message Jesus preached was radical. So radical that his childhood friends and neighbors tried to throw him off a cliff. Jesus' message in Luke 4 was a threat. But it's going to take us a minute to see why. Now, when Jesus showed up at his hometown synagogue, he stood up to read from the scroll. There's nothing strange about this so far. It was normal for different people to read from the scriptures and to give an explanation. So he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah and read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news for the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled it back up, gave it back to the attendant, sat back down in his seat. The people in the synagogue are waiting for him to explain the text. Just give us a couple takeaways, Jesus. Getting out their peppermints and settling in for the message. But the message is short this week. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he tells them. Mouths drop open, eyes widen, and whispers spread. The year of the Lord's favor? Is it really going to happen? 
the older, wiser folks know better than to get too excited. I'll believe it when I see it, Jesus. So what was the year of the Lord's favor and why was it such a big deal? Jesus is reading from Isaiah 60. And in Isaiah, this is a reference to this radical year of release and resetting society. It's a reference to the year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25. The year of Jubilee is the pinnacle of Sabbath expression in the law. Every seventh day, of course, was the Sabbath day. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. And after seven Sabbath years, there would be the ultimate Sabbath after 49 years. There would be a year of Jubilee in the 50th year. And at the beginning of this year, the horn would sound, announcing to everyone that Jubilee had begun. It was supposed to be a time of joy and celebration. It was supposed to be a time of joy and celebration for those farmers who'd fallen on hard times, who'd not been able to recover from the record drought or that fist-sized hail that ruined an entire crop a few years ago. It was a time of joy and celebration for those farmers who had to take out loans to keep their farm running, who had to sell the corner plot of land that their family had cultivated for generations. In the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled, and the sale of land was undone so that the land was returned to the families God had given it to when they entered the promised land. And the sound of the horn was supposed to be good news for those people who'd fallen so far behind in their debt payments that they had sold themselves or even sold a child to be someone's slave or servant to work off the debt. In the year of Jubilee, all slaves were released. The sound of the horn was supposed to be good news even for the land itself which would be given a year to recover from the sodium, the calcium, the alkaline substances that were introduced through irrigation. In this year of Jubilee, the land would rest. This once-in-a-generation year of the Lord's favor was intended to prevent the accumulation of all the wealth of a nation in the hands of a few people. It kept the rich from getting richer while the poor got poorer. The commentator Robert North observes this means that Jubilee Law prevented monopolies that might come from unfettered capitalism as well as total communism that placed all property in the hands of the state. So the sound of the horn was good news but it didn't sound like good news to everyone. Not for those people who worked extra hard to be frugal, extra responsible, extra hard working for 49 years. It wasn't especially good news for the people who held the loans or the people who relied on slave labor. It wasn't especially good news for the pull yourselves up by your bootstraps kind of folks. 
So that's likely why we have no record of this year of Jubilee ever being practiced in its fullness. It was probably considered unrealistic and would have definitely been very disruptive. So that kind of explains why the crowds at Jesus' synagogues were so intrigued by this message. Was this year of Jubilee really finally going to happen in their generation? They'd heard that Jesus had done miracles. He healed people. He'd released them from bondage, ushering in this Jubilee age, this ultimate Sabbath age. They were excited he would be there to do the same things among them. His message sounded like great news, and people were talking about how gracious Jesus' words were. And then he kept talking. Jesus made it clear that the message of good news was not, first of all, for them. He would not be showing them the same signs of this Jubilee age. The year of Jubilee release of ultimate Sabbath rest was not good news for everyone in Nazareth. Just like in the days of ancient Israel, for some people it sounded like downright bad news. This made them furious. So furious, they took him to the top of a hill in order to throw him off a cliff. Jesus' message may have sounded nice at first, but they came to see it and him as a threat. Now this sequence of events makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, stick a new 30-something preacher up in front of a bunch of people who've been working hard their whole lives to be responsible, frugal, and wise with their money and resources, and then get that preacher talking about economics. It might go okay at first. I mean, after all, who among us does not want good news for the poor, freedom from oppression? But get that preacher talking about radical economic policies— that would mean the redistribution of wealth and land, which would be good news for the poor, but not so great news for the not-so-poor. Get that preacher talking about letting prisoners go before they have served their time. And this news that sounded good at first starts to sound like a threat. The general consensus seems to be that preaching and economics do not mix well. Jesus' message of jubilee, the message of a radical economic reset that is formed by this vision of Sabbath rest, well, it might even sound like partisan political threats to us. I see this happening if we look back at the civil rights movement in the United States in the 50s and 60s. We know Martin Luther King Jr. as a civil rights leader who fought for racial equity. We may know his I Have a Dream speech that imagines this day of racial equity. But we're probably less familiar with his later work with the Poor People's Campaign which worked for economic justice because they realized you can't actually have racial justice unless you have economic justice. And for this work, he was called a communist. 
and hatred of him grew and grew, not least of all among good religious folk, until he was assassinated. And then after his death, a certain Christian school principal in Michigan wrote a letter to parents where this principal denounced King as a false prophet who could never be a saved child of God. Like I said, the sequence of events in Luke 4, that makes a lot of sense. That kind of checks out. People don't like it when preachers start talking about economics. Jubilee economics are undoubtedly political. But Jubilee does not fit neatly into our 21st century partisan categories. It recognizes that the market can become oppressive, but it does not locate the answer to this oppression in government bureaucracy. It resists both unfettered capitalism and total communism because both operate on a principle of scarcity. Jubilee poses a threat to both extremes of the political spectrum. It does not view the land and everything that comes from it as something that we earn or compete for, nor as something that we have a right to. Jubilee Economics views the land and its resources as pure gift. It all belongs to God. Jubilee helps God's people resist their worst impulses to hoard, to accumulate without limits, to work with the assumption that if they stop for even a moment, let alone a whole year, they'll fall behind and there won't be enough. But doesn't that just seem so incredibly unrealistic? I mean, we have a hard enough time stopping for one day out of the week. Can we really imagine this pinnacle of the Sabbath system coming to fruition? In the Jubilee Law, God shapes the imaginations of his people to believe and the unrealistic, and to work toward the impossible. I said earlier there's no record of ancient Israel actually observing the Jubilee year in its fullness. Unsurprisingly, they thought it was just about as realistic as we think it is. But still, this image of Jubilee persisted in the imaginations of the Israelites. It gave them something to hope for, when the trumpet would sound and the year of the Lord's favor would come and reset all of the worst impulses of God's people. The Jubilee law persisted and found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who came preaching good news for the poor, proclaiming freedom for prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, who came to set the oppressed free, In Jesus Christ, God challenges his people's broken and distorted view of reality. It need not be the case that for every gain there is an equal loss, that every promise to the poor is a threat to the rich. In Jesus Christ, God helps us to see a better world, an unrealistic world in the best sense, 
where success is not measured by getting more and more stuff and titles and security, but by Christ emptying himself and becoming obedient to death on a cross. In Christ, the understanding of what is possible shifts. It's no longer the case that good news for the poor means bad news for the rich. Because the year of Jubilee will ultimately be the rehumanization of all God's people. Being enslaving, enslaved is dehumanizing. But so is being an enslaver. Being a victim of predatory loans is dehumanizing. But so is being a loan shark who gives out those loans. The year of the Lord's favor was not actually bad news for the rich and powerful, even though it sure felt like a threat. It was God's subversive way of undermining this lie of scarcity and rehumanizing everyone in the process. We see this at work in the book of Acts. In the early church, after the Holy Spirit was sent on Pentecost, the believers who worshipped together also held everything in common. They sold the family farm and the lot outside town. They sold their extra goats and pulled out the money from between the mattresses to give to anyone who had need. God so shaped their imaginations to believe this vision of an unrealistic world and to work toward what seemed so impossible to their ancestors, a world that was not divided anymore by the haves and the have-nots, a world where giving up things and security would be liberating not threatening. Still today, God is at work shaping our imaginations to believe in an unrealistic and better world where we're not divided up between the haves and the have-nots. God continues to empower people to work toward the impossible. And in the process, God is rehumanizing all of us together. Last year, almost 6,000 families on the south side of Chicago had their medical debt completely forgiven because of the collaboration of a number of Chicago-area churches. Now, in the United States, about two-thirds of personal bankruptcies are tied to medical debt. Medical debt is endemic, and it keeps many unemployed or underemployed people trapped in this cycle of poverty. God so shaped the imaginations of these Chicago-area churches to declare a year of jubilee on medical debt for these 6,000 families. Together, the church has raised about $38,000. And then they worked with a nonprofit organization to buy up medical debt for pennies on the dollar. So their $38,000 bought up about $5.3 million worth of medical debt. And one of the pastors links this Jubilee Act to Jesus' message in Luke 4 when he said, We view this ministry as one that embodies what it means to love God and to love our neighbors, to proclaim good news to the poor, whether they worship in our churches or not. This is the work 
of a people so shaped by God's ultimate Sabbath rest, so shaped by this ancient jubilee law, that God empowered them to enact what seemed completely impractical and radical on paper. Now, this is God's invitation to us this morning as we wrap up our Sabbath sermon series. The invitation is to allow ourselves to believe for a moment that this radical year of release and reset is not only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us, but also that it would be good news for each of us. I mean, that's the whole promise of the Sabbath that we've been talking about for a couple of months, isn't it? That what feels like a loss, a loss of productivity, a loss of time, is actually a participation in something far more life-giving. And not only for our sake, but for the sake of the whole world that God loves. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, you've made us for yourself so that our hearts are restless until we rest in you. In the days of old, you gave your people this gift of the Jubilee, a sign of your ultimate day of rest, but not everyone recognized it as a gift. God, by your Holy Spirit, would you shape our imaginations and increase our faith to not only believe that such a day is cause for celebration and joy, but also that such a day will come when every kind of debt will be forgiven, when all the chains of bondage and slavery will be broken. Empower us to work in ways that point to that day for the sake of your coming kingdom of peace and justice. Amen.